how are you? I'm doing well. I was just commenting on Maria, uh, who has the largest hot drink in the entire world. This is either you're a very small human or that's the largest mug I've ever seen in my life. And um, tell me what it says on it. It is the. It says, all mama wants is a silent night. It's a Christmas mug that I got as a Christmas present, but I use it year round. Lovely. I'm a tea drinker, by the way. Okay. Tea drink. Is that a caffeine thing or? No, it's herbal teas. Okay. Um, so some people might know Maria from her appearance on the Ann and Phelim Scoop, which is a podcast which goes out pretty much on a weekly basis. Can you give us like a little whistle-stop tour of your story? When did it start? Why have you become so engaged in this activism community? Well, activism is not new to me. Um, I feel like I've been advocating for my children their whole lives. Uh, with my son, who is the reason for my activism now, it was advocating because he had autism as a child. Um, so I advocated with schools and learned everything that I could about it, even got a master's degree in education related to children with uh, divergencies. Um, and then I had a daughter with a eating disorder and I learned to advocate for her and became a member of a community that advocated. So when my son at 19 told me that he had gender dysphoria and that he felt like he was a woman in a man's body. I did what I always do, which is try to learn everything I could about the topic and educate myself. But the reason why this, these news were such a shock was because this had been a little boy who pretty much from the time that he was a toddler, even before he could speak, he was naturally inclined to all things that were stereotypically boy, uh, wheels, trains, Legos. Um, it, you know, it, it, he even the clothing, if I bought some boy clothes that I thought were super cute, that had, you know, plaid shorts or something like that, you know, little collar or something that I thought would be just precious in him, he would tell me, no, mom, that's girls' clothes and I don't like them. So as he grew up, um, he continued showing an interest and not just an interest, but actual obsession and, uh, you know, hyper-focusing on various things. Um, you know, first it was uh, Legos, Kinect toys, those, anything that was building toys. Um, then when he discovered video games, it was Mario Brothers and um, uh, Minecraft and Mm -hmm. things like that. So um, for him to have come out when, after he went to college, after his first year of college, to tell us that he was a woman was truly the most shocking thing mm -hmm. that he could have said to us. I would have expected anything rather than that. So did you have a concept in your head of the transsexual as being somebody who's, uh, we would say, gender non-conforming, who had kind of was a real outlier within his sex, let's say. You know, I really did not know much about transsexual or transgenders. Um, honestly, 
I, I, my idea of a transsexual, which was the, the word that was common back when I knew about it, was the older man, you know, who had some sort of fetish to dress like a woman or to want to have women parts. Um, it wasn't something that I even knew that existed in the teenagers. I had also seen some television programs about, you know, children who were uncomfortable in their in their body and who felt like they were the opposite sex, but that was really the extent of it. To me, the world was divided into heterosexual, um, homosexual, or bisexuals. I mean, that basically was the way I understood the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you said that with your daughter, you were involved in activism, but from the point of view of uh, eating disorder, can you run people through what are the differences you've experienced between these two different phenomena? Oh, I am so glad you asked that question because I have been itching to talk about this and you and I did not plan this. No, no, um, we didn't. But it, it, yes. however, we should say it's something that it's not totally unique. There are quite a few people who are involved in this where somebody else in the family particularly has had an eating disorder, which is an interesting yes. thing in and of itself, right? So, indeed, and some of the 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 young people, the the kid, the teenagers, and the young adults who are currently experiencing gender dysphoria and are identifying as transgender, several of them also have themselves eating disorders. Um, but yes, so when my daughter was uh, diagnosed with an eating disorder, we went to specialists, which thankfully followed evidence-based practices. Um, but the, the, the overall feeling was that this was a mental illness, that it was life-threatening, and that we had to do everything in our power to restore her to her full weight. Um, none of the therapists uh, really, or anyone, any person with common sense, none of the, the, the nurse at school, nor the teachers, nor adults around us, nobody colluded with this child's eating disorder. Nobody said, you know what, I know you're so uncomfortable eating and you're so uncomfortable, you know, being more than 80 pounds, that I think we should let you starve. And I think we should not feed you. And um, she literally would be almost suicidal at the thought of eating. I mean, it was so distressing to her to have to eat. And it was one of the most difficult things that we had to do was to put the pressure on her until she ate. Um, now, none of these were physical things, but basically it was sitting at the table for hours until she ate. Uh, and we did manage to get her restored uh, to her weight. And she's uh, now an adult and you know doing well, but we had an entire community that supported us in helping this young person see that this was a delusion, that this was her mind basically filtering things in a, in a wrong, distorted way. And when my son um, told us that he had gender dysphoria, I genuinely expected that it would be something very similar. I immediately made the connections. I saw so many similarities between my daughter's eating disorder and my son's gender dysphoria. 
uh, you know, just the delusion, the distorted view of himself, the, the self-loathing of his body, um, you know, not seeing himself the way he really was, not wanting to be that person. Um, and I expected that the professionals would say, oh, yes, this, this is a delusion. It is a distorted view of himself. We are going to do everything in our power to help him deal with the distress and to help him uh, regain his mental health. Uh, we did find a non-affirming uh, mental health therapist, um, but the entire world, it seemed, of professionals were so willing to join the collusion and to join the delusion and to affirm this delusion, which in my opinion is also life-threatening the way that an eating disorder is. Because the pathway of medicalization can be, it is life-altering and can ultimately be life-threatening and takes years of his life. So I, I, I feel so shocked to see how both um, of these distortions of perception of their brains are treated so differently. Yeah, I mean, it should be said that there are people who encourage anorexics not to eat, but they tend to be these peers who have a very negative influence in these websites. And of course, these websites get shut down and doctors have a real problem with this stuff and uh, see fit to take action against it, whereas we're not dealing with that. Because this has what you're dealing with with transgender is an identity. But to play devil's advocate for a moment, there is something to be said that there is a difference insofar as it is an identity. And we hear a lot of the time the argument that, well, you know, if I can't do this, I'll be so depressed. I will be so forlorn that my life will be at, at risk. So that's worth the payoff in terms of long-term health consequences and bone density and osteoporosis and all of these things that we know about. In your son's case, do you think that's something he believes? Do you think that he really believes that he's at risk if he doesn't do this? Or is it just something he's oh, saying? Ab absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in fact, even just last night, um, I had an opening to talk to him. Um, and um, which was unusual because he doesn't really want to talk to us about any of these things. But I said, you know, from our perspective, we see that this hormones that you're using are harming you. And he said, they are not harming me. And I said, yes, they are. Uh, and I mentioned a few of the things that um, we know about, which is, you know, changes in the brain, cardiovascular, bone density loss, and, you know, all of these things. And, uh, and he said, I said, you know, you are welcome to read the studies. And he says, I have read the studies. But if I didn't have the hormones, then I would be in such bad shape. I would be, I couldn't concentrate. Uh, you know, I would be so depressed. And, um, you know, because right now he's kind of on the pink cloud. Uh, he hasn't come down off the pink cloud yet. So he's convinced that, um, you know, he would be so much worse off if he weren't doing this. Uh, but the other thing too, is that he is, you know, He's very young. He's 20. He is in, um, he has autism. 
he's very immature emotionally and he can only see today. Um, he doesn't think about the future. I mean, he doesn't, I mean, it's not a lot different than I guess, you know, young people experimenting with drugs and things like that, except what's different about this is the fact that professionals, the medical community, the mental health community, the policymakers, educators, they're all jumping on this bandwagon to say, yes, medicalize, you know, to hell with the consequences of whatever may happen to you. That's what makes this so dangerous. So do you think that you were treated differently by the medical professionals because it was the trans issue, comparing that to the treatment that you had when uh, you were dealing with anorexia? Did they treat you personally in a different way? Well, I can speak to my experience with medical professionals uh, with the eating disorder. Um, there was absolute total concern for my child and a desire to work as a team uh, to help her. Um, I don't have experience with the medical professionals with my son and the transgender issue because he's an adult. Uh, and he went to an OBGYN who on his very first visit uh, gave him a prescription for hormones before the blood results from the labs that she had drawn were even back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were completely cut off from that process, but we know that she didn't do her due diligence. She didn't ask for a psychological history. She basically just took his word for it. And he had clearly been well-trained by uh, the internet uh trans affirming groups on what to say and what to write and so that he would walk out of that office which was recommended to him as someone that would give him the hormones uh, with a prescription and that's exactly what happened so i suspect that uh, medical doctors unless they were uh, friends of ours and acquaintances of ours uh, would probably just say, we can't talk to you because it's an adult. So. Do you think that, I mean, we hear this a lot and it's such a misperception, isn't it? Because people still believe that you have to go through months or even years of therapy. I wonder where you stand on this. I, I tend to feel like a lot of medical professionals are just scared and that's not to make an excuse for them, but I think a lot of them just do not want to face an accusation of bigotry. And so they, they get the case through as quickly as possible. They just do whatever they can. Do you think there was an element of that in your son's case or am I being too generous? You're being too generous because this woman is an OBGYN. She, this has, he's a man. She has no business giving cross-sex, wrong-sex hormones to men, to young so men. So he didn't even have to go through a, a, a normal family doctor first to get to her? No, no, no. This is a woman who in her website, in her practice has, you know, advertises not just care for women, but also transgender medicine. Uh, And basically, I think it's absolutely ludicrous and quite frankly, immoral (laughs) for a OBGYN who's supposed to treat women to 
treat men, give them hormones to supposedly turn them into women. I mean, I'm suspecting that her goal is maybe to expand her practice with trans women. I don't know. Yeah, customer acquisition. Yes, yes. I am. No, I, I believe that people like her are in it for the money. I mean, this is not, um, you know, she, she wouldn't be at risk or afraid because this is totally out of her scope of practice. I'll tell you something that's really interesting that's happened in the UK. Uh, in the UK, there's a law that says that if you're a man and you have had sex with a man in the last 12 months, you cannot give blood. Mm-hmm. And this was obviously introduced to prevent the infection of the blood supply with HIV. So somebody wrote in and said, well, what if you identify as a woman? And the, the answer, they obviously had to think about this and they wrote back and they said, well, it wouldn't count if you were a woman and that includes anyone who identifies as a woman. So we're now pretending that somebody can go out and have 12 12 months worth of promiscuous sex with other men and just utter these words, I am a woman, and that somehow that's going to clean the blood of this contaminant. And that's the kind of cowardice I guess I'm referring to, because nobody could seriously believe that that's a good medical outcome for anyone. I agree. So to bring things back to Tom, your son, This might be a bit of a general question and it might be a bit too abstract, but why do you think he's doing this? Well, so he's always been uncomfortable in who he is and it had nothing to do with gender. Um, He was uncomfortable because of the autism. He was very socially awkward he didn't really fit in. Um, he was quite severely bullied in elementary school and middle school, a little bit in high school. Um, and so he's never been at ease, uh, both what we would say interpersonally, intrapersonally, um, you know, not feeling, I mean, he describes it as not even feeling comfortable, like where his arms, how his arms fit with his body, like spatially. And, you know, he's like, I feel like my head doesn't quite fit with my body. It's just very vague discomfort. So what he would do is he would create these personas. He would put on these social masks, so to speak. He would make voices. Like he's a wonderful imitator. He's very, very gifted uh, imitator of, of voices and people and mannerisms and really good with like improv. And so he would, when even when he was little, he would just make voices like he was other people, like Donald Duck or whatever. Um, and as he got older, he would actually wear certain like outfits. For example, he would wear a top hat and a cane or Uh, Sometimes he would wear like a three-piece suit with a monocle. I mean, he would show up to church dressed, (laughs) you know, (laughs) with a top hat, a cane, and a monocle. (laughs) I kind of like that idea. I like that. Yes. I mean, he was so quirky and so unusual. You know what? The people who knew him loved him. um, And they just accepted him. That's Tom. That's who he is, you know? And so 
but he would go through these phases of, you know, being this persona or this character uh, to cover up his discomfort. Um, and then, you know, when this was introduced to him, like he went on the internet and he started researching and then two girls in college um, who, not surprisingly, were students of a gender Ident not what is a gender studies class mm -hmm. uh, befriended him, and I believe they made him into a project. Um, told him that he was transgender, and he said, "This makes sense. This is what I've been all my life. I just didn't know it." Mm -hmm. So that that's not true. It's, I mean, how can that be considered a true? gender dysphoria, true condition, um, when someone has to go on the internet to find out about it, or someone else has to tell you that is who you are, by his own admission, when he first started with this process, he told us that it wasn't about gender. Um, but when he found out what it was, then he was like, oh, okay, this is what this means. This is what I've been uncomfortable in my life. Um, if the if he wouldn't be cheered, applauded, um, I actually wrote an article called Help My Son Has Been Hijacked, uh, which was published in Medium that kind of tells the whole story. But it literally, it's like his brain has been hijacked and it's almost like he's under the influence of a cult, uh, trapped in it. If he weren't for all those powerful influences, plus the medicalization that was so accessible to him, we believe this phase would be like all of the other phases that would just pass along and wear out. And this will wear out, but he may be permanently harmed by the time it wears out. So for anyone listening, I will link uh, in the description below to uh, Maria's article and also to the interview on the Adam Phelan scoop as well. So you can get a, a bigger picture. So I know that one of the things that you and I are, are both interested in talking about is the role in this of trauma, because we have outlined in your son's case that there's, there's a certain personality, there's autism, which is at play, but then there are also events which led to this. What were those events? Yes. Um, from the time that he was very, very little, um, I had a very complicated pregnancy with him. Um, was in bed rest four and a half months out of the pregnancy. Um, and then when he was born, my health never went back to normal. So from the time that he was pretty much a toddler, I had a, um, I didn't have good health. And then when he was very young as a toddler, I developed, I had a catastrophic illness uh, which put me in the hospital and, you know, there were many ER visits. Uh, he would see his mom being carried out in an ambulance or see his dad taking mom to the hospital. And sometimes I had to stay in the hospital overnight or um, for a couple of days. And um, even, and then of course, his sister had an eating disorder, which is very traumatic in the whole family. Things did get better uh, when he got a little bit older. Um, but 
when he was 17, um, I had a another uh, life-threatening catastrophic event. I had a aneurysm in my brain that nearly killed me. And um, the hospital called and said that uh, they needed, the family needed to come and say goodbye if they wanted to see me alive. And this 17 year old kid um, had to wake up in the middle of the night to go to the hospital to see his mom potentially for the last time in his life. Um, thank God I survived. Um, and though I was never quite the same, I ended up um, classified um, as disabled. Um, and um, with certain limitations, my life changed. And so he was very, very traumatized by that event. Um, after that, he just kind of started hunkering down in his room, not coming out. We noticed he was profoundly, profoundly depressed. Um, we suspected that he might even be suicidal. Um, and he, we kept offering help, talk to someone, you know, can, can you see a psychologist, a therapist, someone? No, he didn't want to. He didn't want medication. He didn't want to talk to anyone. Um, then the following year, as I got better and I improved, um, he started his senior year of high school and he seemed to really do better and kind of, it seemed to have passed that dark, dark time and uh, of absolute, the being in a hole of depression seemed to have gotten a lot better once he became a senior. So he's been dealing with the idea of potential loss for some time. His whole life. And he also felt like he had to protect me. I mean, he was always like so aware of, you know, is this going to hurt mom or is this going to be bad for mom and mom, are you okay? And, um, you know, so he's been, he's been very concerned about us and, uh, you know, about me particularly. Um, but yes, and he's lost, also lost a beloved pet. His dog was killed by a, a, a do another dog that attacked him. So he lost his dog when he was like, 13 um in the middle of all of that lost a cat yes lost a cat about a year after i had my stroke he lost his beloved cat so i guess there's been so much loss and mm. like potential death and then his grandfather also died when he was i think five or six so you know he's experienced a lot of loss and how do you think, I'm not saying consciously, but subconsciously, how do you think he's told himself that this is going to get him out of that state of fear? Is it as simple as if I reinvent myself as something else, then I will no longer have this kind of fear hanging over me? You know, I hadn't thought about this until just now. but. Though on the outside, we think overall, he's had a positive life, like in spite of my chronic illness and life-threatening illness and all that, um, we created a lot of really good experiences for them, vacations and Disney World and birthday parties and friends and socialization and um, 
very, very involved mom and dad. And, um, you know, we did everything we could to try to normalize their lives in spite of the, the, the overarching looming threat of potential death and hospitalizations and all these things. Uh, and then he was so successful academic, academically um, starting in middle school, then high school, winning awards, traveling um, to places within the United States for competitions and just succeeding. And, and, and um, apparently everything was so, so wonderful. And he had a close group of friends in high school that were very, very close to him, both at church and at at school. Um, but I really believe that the trauma and the discomfort that he feels overall has played such a bigger role that we realized. Um, that we thought because he was succeeding academically and doing so well in these other areas and coping and managing um, that that meant success and that that meant that he had overcome so many things. And I remember just bragging and bragging on him constantly in Facebook and to people. And this is my son and he's, you know, the champion of this and the state champion of this other thing. And, and also, uh, you know, telling his peoples and telling everyone how he has succeeded and overcome so many obstacles. And I now realize just in a way how much pressure um, was put on him and he put on himself. For example, he got a part-time job um, at a, you know, at a store. And uh, one particular summer, now this is all before the whole transgender thing. Um, he was working like 40 or 50 hours a week. I mean, he, it, it almost felt like he was trying to prove something. Like if he wasn't there, like the store was going to fall apart or something. He made it to assistant manager. He got nominated as, as a customer service representative of the year for this whole chain. And I mean, it was just success after success after success. And I think all along inside all this stuff, the discomfort, the trauma, the pain, the fear, probably just kept building up, building up until it, it probably he felt like he was drowning. And at some point, um, it just probably all came crashing down. And instead of dealing with it, dealing with, um, you know, the, the pain and the, 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 the trauma and all the hard stuff and facing and say, okay, this is who I am. I hate myself. Um, I self-loathe myself and who I am. It was just easier to say, let me just literally write this person out. Let me write history. Let me just, um, in a spiritual, emotional sense, kill this persona and recreate myself into someone new. And then when he starts recreating himself, he has an entire cheering section on the internet because he really doesn't have that on the ground. He really is not connected to real people in our city or in our, in our, in his uh, circle of influence that affirm him and do this for him but the internet um, has done such an incredible job of telling him that he's wonderful and an amazing person this new person that he's created 
Mm. Um, so he's like drunk in this new, um, you know, persona. Well, and the, one of the interesting things about this ideology is, and what's changed a lot since only a few years ago is that now it isn't just, I want to be a woman. It's I am and have always been. And so that gives you an opportunity to go back through your whole past and edit anything you dislike. What do you think that processing would look like if he could do it, if he could drop this idea and actually turn back around and face his past? I mean, it's a really very challenging thing for people with autism. Um, regular psychotherapy doesn't necessarily work with a lot of people on the spectrum. Uh, what I have heard that seems to be effective is not so much going back and digging into the past, but possibly something like cognitive behavior therapy um, and just changing those patterns of thinking and finding healthy ways to deal with that. I think for his, everything about his transgenderism is so performative. Um, you know, it's about the shaving, it's about the hair, it's about the skincare, you know, it, it's, it's so obviously almost like mechanical um, that I think coming out of it almost would have to look um, like that, but the opposite, it would almost, that's what I'm thinking, cognitive behavior therapy, it would have to be performative, it would have to be, okay, this is what I'm going to do instead of this. And this is what I'm going to do instead of that. But, you know, I wanted to say something earlier on, but this is really poignant. Um, when our son was diagnosed with Asperger's when he was seven years old, the developmental pediatrician who diagnosed him said to my husband and I, you have to watch out for death by a thousand paper cuts. And we were like, what do you mean? And he says, think of, think of it this way. This child, because of the autism, is going to receive so many little cuts in his life. He said, you know, he's going to be bullied in school, you know, Monday, one paper cut. And Tuesday, another paper cut. He will be, um, you know, ignored another paper cut, not invited to birthday parties, another paper cut. And he went on and he said, by the time he grows up and he is a teenager, he will be hemorrhaging because of all the paper cuts that he has received throughout his life. And his advice was he will receive those paper cuts, but make the home a safe haven for him where he is accepted and he is loved and he's not you know, it, a, a place where he can have peace and, you know, and by reasons that were absolutely not our fault through, you know, the trauma that happened through catastrophic illness and, and you know, all these things that happened at home. Our home was also a place where he got a lot of paper cuts and wounds. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about those words that he gave us autism already as as uh, 
amazing as it is in the giftedness that it gives these kids in some areas, it is a heavy burden too. So they already kind of have that coming in, like this big weight that they have to carry and live with. And then on top of that, the external circumstances that get put on them, um, it's, yeah, it's a lot. Hmm. And I suppose it's going to be very difficult for him to process that without him feeling like he is blaming you in some sense, right? Because because that came into the home, even though everyone knows consciously that it wasn't your fault, it's still the thing which happened. Right. But, you know, the thing that's interesting is that he's changed the narrative Mm. Um, so much that when we try to address these issues of trauma with his therapist and bring it to his, my son's attention and to the therapist who agree that trauma definitely played part in this, our son would not hear of it. Everything in his life became about, oh, that's because I'm living in the wrong gender and, you know, I just have to get to the medicalization and be, be able to become a woman and live as a woman and then everything would be fine. So even if subconsciously, yes, he, there might be blame and there might be pain and wounds and all that stuff through all the trauma that's happened to him, including the bullying and all that. Right now, he won't admit it because his entire life is about gender identity. And so he won't admit to anything else. That's something you hear a lot. It becomes an entire life. What does that mean in, in a bit more detail? What do you mean by that? Well, there's the, just the physical, the performative aspect of it that I mentioned before. I mean, shaving his whole, so just to give you an idea, he's, probably about six one and has always been a big, broad shoulder, big kid, extremely hairy. We called him the handsome Italian. That was his nickname. Um, you know, lots and lots of facial hair and body hair and all that. And I remember when he was like 11 and he had a mustache, even though he hit puberty later, but he already had a mustache at 11 and he was so proud of it. He didn't, we called him Pedro from the movie Napoleon Dynamite. And uh, he, <laughs> you're going to have to go watch it now. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he had the little mustache and would not shave it. He said, that's my pride. That's my manhood. <laughs> it's my pride. And I mean, he was so proud of his little mustache. And so to get rid of all that hair means basically daily shaving, which takes hours. And then the skincare routine takes hours. And, you know, the, 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 the taking care of the hair and the, the, the hair treatments and all of that, hours. Um, so he literally is spending so many hours of his day and his week on just trying to achieve this impossible standard of being a woman. I mean, I literally take five minutes to get ready. And with the pandemic, it's five minutes. <laughs> I mean, I don't even worry about makeup or anything. I just put my hair up in a ponytail and I go, you know, I, 
I have good Hispanic skin. So, you know, that's, that's all I have to worry about. But my son, who's a man, probably spends four hours, you know, trying to keep up the appearance that he's a woman. Oh, and the twisting of the eyebrows. And, and he's still failing at it miserably because he's never going to look as a woman, ever. He will never pass. We also don't talk about that, right? Because there are, in this group that, that you and I are part of, there are young people, young men who are quite slender and who are quite fine-featured and quite small. And then there are other boys who are like six foot three and built like linebackers and it's never going to happen. But of course, this is quite a difficult thing to say. Yeah. Yes. I mean, he was chased um, in high school by the coaches, like his first two, three years of high school, because the football coaches wanted him to play football. Of course, he doesn't have an athletic bone in his body. He, he weightlifted. He did like weightlifting a lot, was very proud of his strength and his muscles. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the way he looks. But you know, the thing about it is we have this Laurel Hubbard guy who looks every bit of the man he is, who's now in the Olympics competing in the women's sports. It is absolutely maddening. What do you think public opinion is? If you cut through the fear and the silence, if everyone knew what was going on, what do you think would happen? I think people would be horrified. I really do. I mean, let's go to the medicalization aspect of it. They would be horrified by that, number one. Uh, people just don't know. They're, they're being told so many lies. And the media has this total control over the narrative of what's going on. Um, you know, and then they would realize the re just how absurd it is that people change the whole narrative of their lives. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I think if it really made sense, I think personally, I think the majority of people don't care or are not aware because it hasn't touched them. I mean, before this affected our family, it wasn't even really in my radar. I just lived my life and, you know, it, it just wasn't something that I was concerned about. And I think the vast majority of the population are in that space. They don't know because it, it hasn't affected them. The same thing with eating disorders. Unless you have someone close to you that is affected, you don't really think about it. So I can't really blame those people for not paying attention to it, for lobbying, for, um, you know, my fight is with those who do know, who should know better, who have signed a Hippocratic oath, who are supposed to care for our kids instead of hurt them. Um, you know, I mean, for our educators who are supposed to teach our children to be critical thinkers, to have inquiring minds, they're just being fed all of this indoctrination blindly. Um, you know, that's where I have a problem, but the reality is that the people who are going to have to wake up are the masses, you know, those who are right now who would not support this, but who don't know. The, they're the ones who need to find out what's going on. And I think it's probably going to come through education.
Mm-hmm. I think when the children start coming home saying I can be a girl or a boy or, you know, when that starts becoming widespread, I think a lot of parents are going to say, wait a minute, what is going on here? And then then they're going to start speaking now because that is really going to affect them directly. And do you feel like it's beginning to change or am I being too optimistic? I think it's beginning to change. Uh, For example, Sweden and Finland and, um, you know, even the UK uh, are putting the brakes on the medicalization of children. Now, that doesn't really help our young adults, especially our young adults with autism and with other learning disabilities and neurodivergences who seem to be the main victims, and I'm going to use the word victims, in this big scam. but, you know, I think it's, it's, some, it's a start. In the United States, more and more states are saying, no, male athletes cannot compete in female sports. No, you cannot uh, push this uh, critical theories and this indoctrination in, you know, K through 12 public schools. Um, so people are starting to wake up in, and, and put the brakes. I think that in the United States, at least, that the current government that we have, they they pushed too far. I mean, they could have had, they could really have had so much support uh, for the LGBTQT, all the letters of the alphabet community. Too many to list. It's this, it's like too many said, to list, right? All the, it's scrabble tile, all the scrabble tiles were pulled out onto the board. Yes, yes, yeah. People were. People were warm to the idea of support and, and, and having equality and all that. But, you know, they push so hard that they want to change language. They want to cancel women's spaces and girls' spaces. They want to indoctrinate children in gender ideology. And I think it's going to backfire. I think it's already backfiring. I hope it backfires. Um in terms of the indoctrination and the ideology and the medicalization in time to save my son and our sons, the ones who are right now in the middle of this. I hope that they don't have to be the the wounded from the war, from this ideology, gender war um, with permanent irreparable harm and scars for life. Yeah, and for my part, I hope that the backlash comes soon too, not just for those reasons, but also because it's going to be against sexual minorities. What do you think has been most successful in cutting through? Honestly, maybe it's just from the perspective that I'm in, but I really think is parents telling their story. I really think, and then having brave, and I have to call them courageous heroes um, in the mental health field and in the medical field uh, who has stepped alongside with us holding hands and saying, we are with you in this battle. People like Stella O'Malley and Sasha Ayad and, um, you know, Dr. Hakim and, and, and Dr. Malone and, um, you know, other people who are putting their names uh, up there um, who are not 
I mean, they, they, I, I bet they're afraid, but they're more afraid of what's happening to our kids and young people than they are of the backlash that can come against them. And it is because they have stepped up and given credibility and giving uh, that professional seal um, to our voices that things are changing. Uh, and now, you know, we have this, like the Karolinska Institute and this and Finland and UK, and of course the Carabell uh, lawsuit that, that was successful. Um, all of these things I think are pushing to change. Um, what is so tragic though, is that I think the more the, you know, the, the, the transgender ideology coupled by the uh, medical industrial complex machine sees that their time is getting shorter, the more they're pushing and pushing and pushing to get as many children and young people hooked on these medications because they have, will have patients for life. Mm. Um, so, you know, even though, you know, the gauntlet comes down and cuts it off, these people will still need their medications. Yeah. And so... dollars over the course of a lifetime is the figure I heard. An awful lot. I mean, that's a house, right? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're an activist, kind of whether it's by choice or whether it's just the way that your life has ended up. So I guess giving up is not on the cards. No, I... You know, this tragedy, because it is a tragedy, has to have some meaning, you know. Um, I think if I didn't feel like I was making a difference, I would probably be curled in the fetal position, rocking in pain and, and, and worry and um, just absolute devastation. Um, but, you know... I don't mean to be melodramatic, but if there hadn't been a William Wilberforce, you know, uh, you know, uh, and and people like that, um, then this absolute outrageous injustices, these travesties of justice would not have stopped. And this is another one of those absolute injustices that are being done it is wrong it is immoral it is evil and it has to be stopped and it's going to take people like us um, who has to stop it I mean we are the parents we are the moms if we don't go and fight for our children no one will so I mean I will be in this fight and I will continue in this fight and um, hope that what happens to my, what has happened to my son one happened to you know to other kids and I but I still have great great hope that he will come out of it because I know my kid I just really hope that is sooner rather than later yeah and you can get the kid with the top hat back yes 